Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fugazi to Fugazi. Joining me today to discuss Smallpox Champion from the 1993 album In on the Killtaker are Clayson and Janita Benali, a brother and sister duo from the Navajo Nation who perform music under the name Sihasen. Welcome to the show, you two. How are you today? Hey there, Yate. Doing well. Oh, Yate, that's how we say greetings or hello in the Navajo language, or otherwise known, we actually call ourselves Diné. Navajo is kind of a given colonizer name. But we are so excited to be here, and um, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. I'm glad you guys could make it. Um, and for people wondering off the bat, there is an interesting connection with you two. Um, I guess before we talk about Seahasen, uh, your current project, you used to be in a punk band uh, called Blackfire with your brother Klee. And uh, you got huge props from like, you know, <laughs> from the Ramones and, you know, very prominent people in punk rock. And uh, once upon a time, April 13th, 2001, you played a show with Fugazi uh, at Gray Hills High School. Can you tell me about that show and how it came about? That was an amazing show with Fugazi in Tuba City, the heart of the Western Agency of the Navajo Nation. And uh, I'm trying to, we were actually talking about how how was it that I think Ian might have contacted us um, because our family was doing a lot of punk shows at that point. Um, we'd bring lots of bands out to Flagstaff, to the Navajo Nation, um, you know, the Vandals. Who else did we, we brought out like, all these amazing group and, well, and Fugazi. Well, what was quite unique about this particular show is that, you know, as youth, you know, we're, we're coming at this from a youth perspective. Blackfire, you know, we were, we're a trio siblings coming from a region that does not have a lot of resources and a lot of people don't get exposure to um, international touring acts or just anything in general. So to try to bring you know, the things that we would experience, we'd go out, we tour, we travel, connect, network, meet amazing bands, you know, such as the Ramones and so forth. And we'd bring them um, out. And Fugazi was one of these, one of these groups, they contacted us saying, hey, we're going to be touring through, we don't want to play Phoenix, they didn't want to be in a large city, they wanted to, to focus their Arizona leg of that tour on the reservation to come to, to indigenous communities and we're like, of course, we can we can host you. We can help make this happen. And I remember kind of the process. And we actually had the concert. It was unique because people had come from Washington State, from all over. All over. Like, you know, we're looking at the whole Southwest. This was one of their only few Southwest dates that they had played. So, you know, when you know, went out on their, their listserv and people found out that they're playing in Grey Hills. They're like, where the hell is Grey Hills? How, does, <laughs> how do we even get there? And then the kids, the kids from the reservation, you know, they, you know, I don't think they believed it. You know, there were so many um, different events or things that, that were occurring. We were just starting out promoting. So a lot of the youth were like, you know, why would, Fugazi would never come here. That That's just not, that's not real. So, uh, we had a huge turnout, but it was like from Texas, from 
every which way that you can imagine. It was a beautiful show. And the youth afterwards from that region and community were like, what? It was real? You know, this really happened? And we, we did have <laughs> a good turnout. But it was just a funny mix of of disbelief. That's crazy. But I I'm... think that... Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think that often happened at a lot of the shows that we produced um, with with our actually with our momager with Berta Benali, um, we would do all kinds of different concerts, bringing music to the reservation. You know, we brought Joey Ramone. We brought um, that was right after he had. Uh, I guess the Ramones had disbanded, and that was his first solo project. Re- they went into retirement, Clayson. <laughs> I know Ramones forever. <laughs> but but you know like. You know, we, we brought Maynard out from Tool. We brought all of these different artists out. And our intention was to make music accessible. Because when we were growing up, um, it was always that music was inaccessible for for youth. Like, if you wanted to go hear music, um, you know, there it, it was experienced in a bar, it was experienced in different places where there were prejudices that existed, either in a border town where there's prejudice against indigenous people or in a bar where there's ageism, prejudice, you know, restrictions against um, people under the age of drinking. And so for us, for our family, we really just wanted to focus on making music accessible, but also bringing in music with a positive message. Um, that was really important for us. And we even created an event called Hoditsa, which means to, to be heard, to listen to. And that event was solely focused on doing outreach, getting youth, in, you know, trying to empower and inspire youth that, you know, that they didn't need substances in order to, um, uh, to, to exist, you know, and well, was that, really that just quintessential break down all those stereotypes. Rock sort of type of punk rock thing where, you know, drugs, alcohol, you know, that, you know, was, seemed almost synonymous because if you want to go to a bar where music is happening, you know, you have to be 21. And so that we wanted to break free from that. And just sure. make it accessible, as my sister was saying. But when we looked at, you know, like Grey Hills, that was like our, became a, a venue that we developed. You know, we were kind well, of a small, it, we weren't existed. really promoters. No, it existed because it's a high school. Yeah, it's a It's an school. auditorium. Um, yeah, it's a boarding, it's an indigenous boarding school, uh, high school on the reservation that uh, there were different events that took place. And boarding schools, you know, actually this ties into the whole legacy of, of smallpox blankets and how all that came to be because you have different eras going through indigenous genocide, essentially, where you had, you know, governmental policies directed at warfare, you know, trying to eliminate and eradicate indigenous peoples. So from reservations, eventually there's you know, you have genocide, then you have the Reorganization Act and the creation of boarding schools. Mm-hmm. And those boarding schools are a process of completely, you know, killing the man or, or killing the Indian and saving the man. That's That was the motto, the, the slogan that the United States government had, to kill the Indian and save the man. Wow. So you'd kidnap kids, take them off, away from their family, and then, you know, at a young age, 
you know, just completely try to break that culture, rotate them between Mormonism, Catholicism, Christianity, and replace complete identity and culture, and then try to show them a new value of, of life, capitalism, essentially, that, you know, you're only going to be kind of an indentured servant, you know, or you know, we're going to teach you vocational skills, not how to be doctors or lawyers or highly mm-hmm. educated, but just enough to to be part of that labor force because that's how we were viewed as as another form of you know the resources the resources from the land or the resources as a people as a labor force and i believe that's been in the news a lot lately with um in canada right um something about like the the remains of native children have been sort of discovered were neglected and and died in these boarding schools and that's just just now coming to light Well, actually, we have always known what boarding schools really were, their intention, and what happened. There still are survivors from the boarding school era that that are traumatized, and we see that intergenerational trauma that they experienced that has been passed on to their way of parenting and being a part of a community member to their children, and even their grandchildren. And so it's not just a Canadian issue. Boarding schools are not just a Canadian issue. Um, they're here in the United States, too. Yeah. My well, brother I the and first, I... The first creation was Carlisle. Right. My, my brother and I had the opportunity to go to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is the first boarding school, Indian boarding school, as they were called. And... Um, it currently is on, uh, I believe it's a, it's a military base. And so you have to get clearance to go through and to, um, to visit these, these children. And the, the history of, of Carlisle, and it's, it's, it's emotional for us. I mean, people say, you know, it was it was a long time ago, get over it, but it wasn't a long time ago. We mm-hmm. still have relatives that, that never came home. There still are names that are spoken that they're that never came home to their their families. And when we were in Carlisle, we learned the history of the the children's the in, the Indian Children's Cemetery that exists there. And um, we went to to pay our respect and to honor those children. And first of all, it was unnerving to have to go through the, the process of the background check, all of that, to make sure that you were allowed to go in to the military base to visit these children. And secondly, we learned that um, the military base there unearthed, they moved all of these children's remains because they wanted to make a football field, a, a sports field. So they were all unearthed from this quiet place that was behind the buildings where they could rest peacefully, and they were put into this busy intersection right when you come into the military base where there is no rest. There's a plaque that is there. There are unmarked graves. Or there, there, there are graves, headstones there without names. There are the tiniest little graves that you've ever seen, and it's um, and it's 
uh, sorry, it's, it's, it makes me so emotional because this is, this is a part of that history that, that these children were put into the earth. They're the seeds. Their stories have grown. This history is now being uncovered. It's now being known. Mm-hmm. And and we need what we what we need is for people to acknowledge it that you know well carlisle is just one that's small, one that's you know, we one look at almost every boarding school and their history and the the reason, the fact that there's the some place behind the building or on the on the property in the school property where those children are are laid to rest you know and they never returned home there, there we is actually, a lot of information. Actually, I was going to add that, um, if you don't mind, we actually um, sh- shot some video footage there, and I've been wanting to post it, so maybe I'll post it um, in conjunction, because I think it's really important that people see um, the conditions and, and, and see the facts. Like, sometimes we hear about things, but if we don't see it, then we can't really believe that it exists. And we need people to see that these injustices, these atrocities against in, indigenous families and children exist. They not only existed, but they still do exist today. Yeah, absolutely. I For every episode, I put as many links as I can in the show notes. So if you do, do post that, I'll... Uh, certainly include the link so people can can see that um that would be great uh i and you know i i guess with all that in mind it must have been sort of cathartic to sort of retake uh the the idea of like this this space that was a boarding school and to use it for like a positive just a positive community thing in in what you guys did and putting on these shows for us i think the boarding school era and the way that psychologically damaged our nation, our, our communities, not just Navajo, there's over like 567 federally recognized tribes. A lot of tribes are still struggling for recognition, but we're, we're out here in the Southwest. And just to kind of illustrate, like for myself and my sister, you know, we, our, our father made a conscious decision with our mother and decided not to have us remain on the reservation for our process of education because of how atrocious these schools were. And there was still this was still ongoing. You know, I'm 44 years of age now. And for my father to remove me from our homeland for my own safety and protection to put me in a school, you know, on, in a border town, that just kind of shows you how how bad it was you know sexual abuse mental abuse physical abuse on all levels wow and you know we're still dealing with that intergenerational trauma so being an indigenous person off the reservation in public schools you know where we're faced with racism and all these new isms that that we quite frankly you know it's like trying to figure out how to deal with it you're an outcast you know and that's how we found punk rock. That's that's that became our community, our family. That's who took us in and became, you know, that creative nurturing force that became Blackfire and essentially who we are today as Seahassen. Mm-hmm. I wanted to add that um, that 
so I had actually an interesting thing, a personal thing happened yesterday. I went to go pick up my, uh, my brother's daughter from her school, which is a school that is a Navajo language and Spanish language immersion school here in the border town. That is the same school that I went to when my parents, when our parents decided that they didn't want us to go to a boarding school at such a young age. And it's the same school that also took my, um, took my Diné accent away from me. I was put into special classes um, in order to not have a beautiful indigenous accent because they said that it would hold me back in life. Wow. So when people think that, when, when people, um, people think that all of these things are in history books, they're not. All of these injustices still exist today. We are living and breathing those injustices, whether it's um, through our education system, whether it's through the intergenerational trauma, whether it's through the systems and the bureaucracy that are created as a means to control us. I think, you know, when you look at that, some of the words in Fugazi's smallpox champion, you know, it's like, this is the pattern cut from the cloth. This is the pattern designed to take you right out. You know, that's exactly our our life, what we've experienced, you know. Yeah. This interwoven generational process of trying to eliminate us as a people. And, you know, we're finally at a stage where awareness, education, you know, it's it's not just a small group of punks in a club, you know, talking about social justice issues. You know, it's mainstream media acknowledging and having that awareness, you know, that, hey, first and foremost, we're still alive, we're still here. And then when you look at COVID-19, even like how that interplays, like just, you know, we, we think of smallpox. Yes, that was used, that's biological warfare used against indigenous people. And going back historically, like you think of the 1918 flu pandemic and all these different transitions, you know, in this moment that we're in with COVID-19 and how that interplays. We we are in a place where I, th- I think you look at how indigenous populations are impacted when you have deadly viruses, you know, and, you know, it's, it's tragic and it's happening. The history repeats itself on so many levels because of those policies that are still in place, you know, because we don't have necessarily running water. One third of our reservation, our community still is without electric and running water. So it kind of sets the stage for disease or, you know, viruses, you know, to come through and be that plague, be that destructive element, you know, the same as smallpox back in, you know, 1800s, 1700s, you know, we're still seeing that play out today in real life. You know, it's, it's affecting us, it's affecting our communities, and we're, we're still trying to pick up the pieces. And, you know, just in the last few days, we've had elders that were, were laid to rest just yesterday from COVID-19. Wow. So <laughs> it's real. It's real yeah. for us. I I wanted to say, um, j- just in case I forget later, that you mentioned the line uh, cut from the cloth. 
I wanted to just mention later that would become the title of an Evens song, um, Ian MacKay's band with with Amy Farina. Um, it does to me it doesn't seem to have that much to do with this song, um, but you be the judge. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, that's that's so interesting. You say that when when I had Mark Anderson on as a guest, he made the point. You know, we were talking about give me the cure, about AIDS, about COVID nineteen, and he pointed out to me that like yeah, any any disease. Um, whether it's something like AIDS that specifically was like uh, was circulating among the gay population, um, but that almost doesn't matter as much because um, any marginalized population is going to be hit harder by by illnesses by by pandemics um, than than the privileged population for like a myriad of reasons. Um, so that's yeah, it's it's so hard to hear that it's it's hitting you guys um, really hard. I'm sorry to hear that. Something else you mentioned, sort of about the the history um, becoming more apparent. I think that's really in the spirit of this song. Like to me, I think Smallpox Champion Guy is he's writing with a with a spirit of um, of hope uh, of knowledge that the people will become more and more aware of the history of the indigenous people of the Americas as time goes on. Um, he has lines like "History rears up to spit in your face." Um, we know how you got it. Like we know how you how you took over the nation. Um, memory serves us to serve you yet. So I think he he's writing a lot with the spirit of you know more and more people are aware of what happened. Do you think that's true? Like in your personal uh, observation? I'm actually I'm 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 reading the lyrics along with you. Um, you know, in terms of like, you know, we can't ever. We can't ever give give up hope, you know, as those those populations that um, that that have suffered um, from manifest destiny, from you know, from the plague of of that that kind of self righteous um, taking that existed and that still does exist. You know, when we talk about, you know, the lines, history rears up to spit in your face. You saw what you wanted. You took what you saw. We know how you got it. Your method equals wipeout. And we know how you got it. Like that, that's important. We know how you got it. Yes, we know as indigenous people, we know as um, peoples who... um, were subjected to the aggressions and the genocidal uh, tactics and abuse from from the privileged class. We know how you got it, but still, the rest of the world doesn't. And I feel like that's the responsibility, is that we need to keep speaking out it doesn't matter if you are a person of color or not. We need to speak out and we need to, in, in ways that we are allies to each other, in ways that we, we are no longer, um, you know, uh, I don't know what you would call it, mansplaining, race-splaining, um, somebody else's history, but we need to, as a society, allow it create the spaces not even allow that's the wrong word we need to create the spaces we need to empower 
people of color um, and and the mi minorities who don't have the privilege of having a platform. We need to find ways to uplift and empower those voices so that way those voices can tell their own stories. And you think of just in this day and age, like I was actually reluctant at first to, to get vaccinated for COVID-19 because of syphilis blanket or of, of smallpox. But then you think of even in the African-American communities, like just how people were remembering, you know, the Tuskegee experiment, you know, from uh, ran from 1932 to 1972, you know, to 1972, you know, so that that is still a very real touchy subject. So when, when you have an experimental vaccination coming out and, you know, it's made available to our communities. I'm, I'm actually proud to say that, you know, our, our community, you know, took that leap of faith and, you know, we've have, have some of the highest numbers of populations that have vaccinated and, you know, it's been a huge fight in the, in this battle, but, you know, there's, there's distrust that we have. And that's something that has aligned punk rock, indigenous communities and, you know, people of color, like going back to thinking about how diverse those scenes were, like our punk rock shows, you know, it was always about, you know, not just the outlaws or the, the people that were pushed to the outcasts, you know, it was just like, there, there was a sense of belonging, regardless mm -hmm. of who you were, what, what color class, you know, your sexual preference, preferences, all of that was just, it didn't matter I don't know, Janita, my sister's giving me like... Not, I said it's not a sexual preference. It's it's not a preference. It's it's who you are. Yeah. Your sexual identity. But yeah. that, back in those in those days, you know, you think of how amazing the the scene was. You know, we, we worked hard to build our scene in our community, you know, not just Flagstaff, but on, on the reservation, northern Arizona. And, you know... We, called our, our production company Takaho Production and just to to be able to to help bring education and awareness to whatever issues there were. And it, it did get dangerous, you know, like as a band as Blackfire, we we actually were on the front lines, you know, wherever there was a cause or something that needed a voice, we would go directly to those front lines and represent that. And I, I think Ian McKay was is he a, a lawyer? I, I remember like being amazed just at, at like some of the initiatives and things that they were involved with too. I was like, wow, you know, these guys are conscious and they've got their, their shit together. It was powerful. <laughs> and your point about education is a really good one because um, in the 33 and a third book on, in on the kill taker uh, it's, it's revealed that Guy, uh, well, Guy said about this song he, that uh, quote, I had just read bury my heart at wounded knee he says that whole story is just so perverse and horrible, but it's also symbolic of a lot of ways that America operates. What looks to be an altruistic gesture is actually poison, actually a method of power and control and blame. It's a metaphor for how this country operates and continues to operate, um, end quote. And uh, because he said that, I I started reading uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee also. Um, I'm kind of in the middle of it, but I... the the part that deals with uh, the Navajo people is sort of right up front. So I read that and there's a lot that I didn't know. Like, for example, I, I sort of assume that um, you guys probably, probably every Navajo school child learns about like Chief Manuelito 
Um, but I had never heard that name, for example. Um, and there are other things like, yeah, Janita, I think you were saying a lot of people say, well, it was a long time ago. Um, and something else is, I think a lot of, like a lot of white Americans today probably say, yeah, not only was it a long time ago, but they weren't even my ancestors who were doing this. Like my ancestors came here later. Um, so like, why should I feel like, you know, bad about it? But something that I learned reading that book that never quite clicked for me before at the risk of sounding kind of stupid is like the, what, what kind of role white supremacy played? Because obviously, yes, it was like, um, a racist action for these people to, to like kill and displace, uh, the native Americans. But I guess I had always thought of it more in terms of like, they're being racist for themselves, right? And for, for their own benefit, for the benefit of their friends and their children. But I, I read this part of, um, of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. That's, it's quoting the general James Henry Carlton. He wrote this letter to his superiors in Washington, D.C. about the Navajo removal to, this, to the Bosque Redondo Reservation, uh, who, for, for our listeners, this was like a really just sort of desolate, terrible place that, that those people were removed to. Uh, we, they call it the Long Walk of the Navajo. There's like sent 300 miles from their homeland to this place. Um, but uh, quoting this, this uh, general, Carlton, he said, These 6,000 mouths must eat, and these 6,000 bodies must be clothed. When it is considered what a magnificent pastoral and mineral country they have surrendered to us, a country whose value can hardly be estimated, the mere pittance in comparison, which must at once be given to support them, sinks into insignificance as a price for their natural heritage. They have fought us gallantly for years on years. They have defended their mountains and their stupendous canyons with a heroism which any people might be proud to emulate. But when at length they found it was their destiny too, as it had been that of their brethren, tribe after tribe, away back toward the rising of the sun, to give way to the insatiable progress of our race, they threw down their arms. End quote. Um, so what that really illuminated to me was it wasn't just white supremacy in the sense that those people in the U.S. Army back then were white and they thought that made them superior to the Navajo and all the other tribes. And it wasn't just that they killed and displaced Native Americans for their own benefit, but it was white supremacy in the sense they did it for the progress of the entire white race, right? Just like he said. Um, so basically they did it for me. They did it for my family and like every other uh, white citizen of the United States today. And maybe I didn't ask for it, but in fact, they did do it for me and I benefit from it. Like, that's crazy. And exactly. When and you people... think like, like if, so if somebody murdered another person and then robbed all his money and gave it to me, I can't, I can't just say like, oh, that's horrible. I didn't ask him to do that, but then continue to like enjoy the money guilt-free. And that's sort of the situation. And that's, that's like the insanity that I didn't really realize before. That's exactly true. And when people say that it wasn't my ancestors that created these atrocities, you know, you have to, they, there's, there's this disconnect of, but it is, it, but it is the system that created it. So that way your people, your race could be more privileged and could put, um, Ed could put our indigenous people into really into the into the graves where our culture into the graves, our language into the graves, you know, our our people um, that we weren't we weren't uh, they weren't the the United States government never really expected 
us to continue to exist beyond reservations. They expected for us to assimilate. And so, it, and, you know, and, and mostly die off, really. Um, you know, when you talk about Bosque Redondo, and that was a concentration camp. And that's what it was. It was a concentration camp. And that's what needs to be talked about, the concentration camps here in the United States. The boarding schools where children went to were not for education, but they were, in fact, for creating slave labor, and they were for um, for taking the indigenous person out of what they considered the human being. Mm-hmm. And so when, you know, it's, it's all of these all of these things that you know that that we see the infrastructures that exist today that oppress indigenous peoples that allow for companies you know big mineral companies to come through declare eminent domain um and take our resources destroy our water sources um you know put put populations in the um, in the downwind and that get black lung because of the mining corporations that exist and the uranium mines that continue to and the tailings that continue to not be cleaned up from World War II that still exist and that Navajo families Diné families still um, maintain their homes from these tailings or their animals drink from these washes and which create high cancer rates um, for our people. So it's, it's all of these things when you, when you start to, to, to look at, and, and I'm saying this not in a way to overwhelm people, but in a way that I really hope that it opens people's eyes to see, wow. Okay. So maybe white privilege does exist. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I continue to benefit from that. And how then can people no longer benefit from white privilege? Like, like what, what, is, what is the route after that? Yeah. What can people do? And there, there are ripple effects, as Jania was illustrating. You know, it's like that the longest walk for us, the Trail of Tears for the Seminole, Cherokee, all the, the tribes in the eastern seaboard, Adolf Hitler studied that and used those those concepts that United States government developed to inter indigenous populations. He used that knowledge and information to <laughs> to create the concentration camps against Roma, against Jewish people. You know that that ripple effect of destruction is a seed that was planted right here in your homeland and your backyard by this government, by this country. And that's that's a reality. You know, it's, it's just history. People need to understand, you know, these these details so that way we don't repeat them. You know, that's, it sounds like a, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's one of those phrases that you well, hear over and over. Well, it's the perfect that's example. That's the reality. Yeah, well, it's the perfect example of the disconnect uh, that Junita was talking about because there are a lot of Americans uh, who, for example, still like hold uh, Germany accountable, like hold some kind of a grudge for what happened in the Holocaust, um, which is understandable. But like the, the way they talk about it, it's as if 
the the Native American genocide and the enslavement of black people for generations was somehow better than than what Germany did. And like, I don't I don't think it was like it's I think we have a heritage that's uh, every bit as bad. Um, and Americans are just just don't realize that. And, you know, I believe that that's truly, you know, that really is because people aren't taught that in school. People are still taught that Columbus discovered America on the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. And the true history of America is not yet taught. We like, at some point, folks, we have to just be responsible for our actions. We have to be responsible for what took place and what continues to take place. Because without accepting that responsibility, without uh, that um, acknowledgement of wrongdoing, we're not going to heal anything. Mm-hmm. Like we, in, in terms of working towards a, a more, an equal future, a just future, uh, healthy communities, we have to acknowledge what happened, what continues to happen, and how we are a part of that. To talk a little more about some of the ideas that um, that Guy Pichotto brings up in this song, I think one of the interesting ones is the li- in the line, to take all the cotton that's cut from the stalk, weave in the disease that's going to wipe you right out. That's really interesting. It's this insidious idea that, you know, not only are are the white men taking over the territory, but they're, they're taking it over and using the resources of that territory, um, the cotton plants, etc., to further create weapons that wipe out the native people. So it's it's this uh, endless cycle of using like using the the resources of America against its people, um, which is just one further step of cruelty, I guess. I know for us personally, you know, when we look at you know what is the resource, what you know what is that you know in this in that particular line, it refers to cotton, you know. And for us as Danette in our region, coal, you know, we are from a region called Black Mesa, also known as Big Mountain. And going back to the 1930s, you know, when the United States government discovered um, the resources, you know, below our feet, everything from coal, uranium, oil in our particular region, you know, then you there's something called the the relocation act that that I was born into my sister was born into where you know they were forcibly trying to remove our people from the land to access the coal so they created a, a whole kind of propaganda a war between Navajo and Hopi saying that if Congress didn't intervene there's going to be bloodshed and that these two tribes are are feuding and fighting when the reality was that this particular situation these tribes had been coexisting, working together, you know, helping, you know, as Dene, you know, we're semi, I guess, um, what's the word? We're semi nomadic, you know, with our livestock, moving from summer camp to winter camp and trading, always trading, intermarrying. You know, there's a whole history, beautiful history between our tribes. Um, and then later you get this kind of, you know, Mormon lawyer, John Boyden, that comes in and then creates this whole campaign, a multi-million dollar campaign back in the 30s to say that there's 
there's a, a war between, and the, you know, this kind of plays into the whole establishment of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, and you see the same pattern play out. You know, like when you, the United States went into Iraq, they created the BIA, the Bureau of Iraqi Affairs, and mm-hmm. the first thing that they did was seize the oil wells, put that in trust for the Iraqi people, and it's the same paradigm, you know, of, okay, you know, we're, we don't see you as, essentially as humans or as people that can make decisions for your own, on your own behalf. And, you know, as indigenous people, we are trustees. We are trustees of the United States government. So we don't technically own the land. You know, when you think of, you know, American citizens who purchase land, they have a trust or a deed, you know, mm-hmm. they're a citizen, <laughs> you know, the right to vote. That didn't come to us till much later. You know, all those privileges that, that most Americans have, you know, those are things, rights that we've struggled still, you know, to, to get those. You look at the ballot initiatives of voting today, you know, and how the Republican and conservative parties are trying to take and strip away rights of minorities and communities to suppress and oppress our our voices so you know we can't elect representatives to you know have representation you know those are realities you know and that plays back to that where does the electric come from you pop you swip you know you you walk into your room you say alexa play such and such whatever you know play fugazi play fugazi <laughs> you know where does that power where does that energy come from and you trace those lines in, in many cases, you know, for California, you know, that used to come from our region. You know, that was coal that was extracted and sent in a pipeline all the way to the Mojave Generating Station at one point. Fortunately, that's, there's transitions, you know, we're, we're coming out of the era of fossil fuel industry and we're pushing, we're fighting, you know, for sustainable energy when you every time you follow those power lines back it takes you to indigenous people that sustain from that land and they disregard you know their their inherent rights to survive and to sustain from that land and what's under their feet is more valuable profit over human life and that that you know every time you know you think of cotton or what you know what is the resource mm-hmm. you look at where where's the war where's the conflict every time you go to the heart of the matter, you're going to see what is the resource, where's the money in it, and what is our interest as the United States government or other other countries, you know, what is their vested interest, and it always comes back to money. Hmm. I wanted to, um, real quick, you know, as, as we're talking about this line, this is the frontier with winter so cold. Greed informs action where action makes bold to take all the cotton that's cut from the stock. Weave in the disease that's going to wipe you right out. Like there's, I, I feel like that's deeper. And I, I really, um, it's deeper than just the words are. And, it, you know, I think that's really the beauty of, of song because song becomes so personal. What one person creates takes on a different meaning through somebody else's life experiences. And, you know, that line could mean something to somebody else. But to me, it you know, talking about, you know, Clay, someone's just talking about 
greed informs action where action makes bold, you know, relocation, resource, mineral extraction, but also to take all the cotton that's cut from the stock, weave in the disease that's going to wipe you right out. I feel like, you know, that part, it's not only talking about indigenous people, but it's also talking about the slaves that were on plantations that grew that corn, not uh, uh, that grew that cotton, sorry. Um, and, you know, and, and were, were oppressed and were, you know, were forced to, to pick the cotton uh, that wove those blankets that were given to the indigenous people to continue that cycle of genocide against black and brown people. And, you know, part of that disease, weave in that disease, you know, is that for so long, there's been so much division between peoples. We, as I think we as a society, um, generally speaking, (laughs) seem to see us versus them in so many different ways, whether it's from school to school, um, mascot to mascot, whether it's from political party to political party, gender to to whatever, to whomever, to whichever. There's always an us versus them, which is part of that disease that exists. Divide and conquer. It's the divide and conquer, exactly. And, you know, weaving in that disease that's going to wipe you right out. And that that is a disease within itself, that divide and conquer that will absolutely wipe us out. And that's so much of what we're seeing today is that we're not seeing, you know, I mean, mean, (laughs) my brother and I, you know, we, we see our reflections in, um, in people every day, you know, it doesn't matter who or where they're from, but for the general population, um, it seems that they see themselves and then they see the other person. And there's that lack of community. There's that lack of, um, that just basic, uh, humanity, that respect that exists. So it's almost like, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I, as I, as I, I've been reading and, you know, these lyrics and, and listening to the song and, and the, the impassioned way that Fugazi delivers this song is so powerful that, that, that I feel like this was written about history it was written about a point of history and definitely, you know, I, I got the, um, the bury my heart or bury your heart US of A as being a part of bury my heart and wounded knee, um, from that, from, from that amazing book. Um, but, but it's as much as this song is about the past, it's still about the present. Yeah. And so that brings us to the future, right? So yeah. what it, it, this is the question that Janine and I were, were going over, like, what is champion? Like, who is the champions? And, you know, it's it's funny because uh, for my sister and I, with our project, our newest project, it's called Sihasin, which means hope. And, you know, the, the, the fight, the struggle for 
social justice, environmental justice, these are, are things that that have always kind of been part of our foundation, whether we would go to protests with our grandmother speaking about the coal mine and forced relocation. And, you know, today, fortunately, Peabody Coal has, has shut down. And we, we have seen amazing champions, allies, people coming Victories. and supporting, working together. You know, it's it's not just us, you know, it's it's a it's a we <laughs> or it's not not just me, I should say, you know, this is a we. This is I, I see hope, I see, you know, progress in it's always not like some big victory where where we see like everything changing right before our eyes. You know, it's like steps, baby steps, you know, getting to where we need to. And sometimes it doesn't feel like we're moving fast enough. But I remember the the first time that we actually met, you know, Fugazi, they came into a room, you know, we're setting up, we're at Grey Hills. And these guys, they're troubadours. They just like, boom, come in. And the first thing they unload from from the van is is a dryer. It's like this small little box dryer <laughs> on wheels. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, these guys are badass. These guys are road warriors. This is so fucking cool. And it, it just left such an impression. Like they just went right to work. They got their clothes, their laundry, hand washed everything, set it out. And they were ready, you know, as soon as the, the show was over, like their clothes were, you know, we're in the Southwest in the desert. So their clothes were already dry and ready for the next next step, you know, onto the next show. But it was just like that preparedness of like, we get out, we take action, we do, we get it done. And I remember interviewing them and, and talking to them and asking them, because at that point, I think, you know, they had very few recordings. It was like, I remember sitting in the room and they were giving an interview. I can't remember if I was interviewing them, or, but they were talking about just the, the amount of music that they had produced and recorded. And they, I think the question was like, you know, something about playing the same songs every night and they were like no we're we're not um necessarily playing the same song it's different every single time mm-hmm. every time they would play you know their song it was it was new and fresh for them and that left such an impression on me of like when you when you step up to to sing your song or to you know for us when we're singing our songs about injustice or whatever you know it's 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 something that we're we're impassioned about, we, we feel it to our core. We know, you know, it's not just an act. This is something that is real for us. So when we're communicating that message in just the same way that, you know, here's some of the songs that they'd been playing over and over, but it was just like, it was fresh, it was new, and they had to communicate it to you as the listener and give you this information and this advice in whatever format, you know, it's, you know, that's the beauty of creativity and art and music. You know, the listener takes it in, they absorb it, and it impacts them and it, it, in whatever level and the, whatever meaning is needed for them to hear. You know, that's, that's the power of music. It just transcends and it gives you what you need when you need it. So that, that was just something that I, I took away from that. And, you know, as an artist and musician, it, it kind of left me with, because, you know, whenever you're performing song after song, night after night, you know, sometimes, you know, you don't want the the emotion, the impact of it to, to be taken. You know, you want it 
to to be as pure and true as the day you wrote it. So they definitely gave me a little bit of a, a nugget of wisdom there. Yeah. So as musicians, um, did you have any particular thoughts on how, how this sounds as a song? I remember like listening to Fugazi and being like, wow, this is, there was elements of jazz and like just, it was so free, you know, for Blackfire, uh, there was a point where I think we were kind of hardcore punk rock. Actually, in the beginning, we were goth. We had some reggae. <laughs> ska. ska <laughs> punk. punk. We, we were like just all over the place. And it wasn't until like the Ramones came in and helped us shape and define our sound. And when I listened to, to Fugazi as a drummer, you know, it's like, you know, just the things that were happening, it was just so fluid and you know, experimental on so many levels, you know, like, of course you have like the Grateful Dead or or jam bands, but this was like kind of like a jam band with punk rock, you know, elements. And it, it always, for me, was fluid and free. And that's what I loved about drums. And that's how I play. So I, I definitely connected with it on that level. Yeah, I, I would have to agree that, you know, hearing Fugazi, the first time I was taken back, I was like, whoa, this is really like genre bending. Like, it's not just straight up punk rock. It's, you know, it's like, but it, but it is because it's raw, because it's like, it's truth. Yeah. And what I loved about that, it was that this was music that made me think. And to me, like that, that is like, that's the best kind of music. And, and the, so when I heard Fugazi for the first time, I was like, whoa, like you can't, you don't just listen to it. It's not just the superficial layer, but it's not something that you just feel, but it's something that like you get to think about, that you get to understand in different layers, which is really cool. And I think my reality was that I couldn't actually afford to buy the record. So whenever friends would like lend tapes, you know, like we'd circulate, like we'd go hang out as as kids in front of a record store called Dab Nabbits here in Flagstaff. And, and you know, eventually somebody might pick up an EP or something and it might circulate and eventually show up at my house. And I'm just trying to remember, like, I think it was on a mixtape that some friends had given to me. And that's that was like my first experience of Fugazi. And then that that process of just you know when you're a kid and you live in a rural region where there's not a lot of touring acts, you know it's like you're hungry, you're starving. We were West Coast and they're they're East Coast, so they didn't tour or travel through our region, you know, very much. You know, just that one particular encounter where they came to our home, mm-hmm. we got to host them. It was like. But I don't think I could even afford like to buy an album or a T-shirt from them. So it was just like one of those things where it's just like ships passing in the night, you know, you kind of just sharing the experience. And, you know, we were actually trying to dig up like, did we did we videotape it? Did we uh, record it? And like digging through all these memories and looking at all the shows that we hosted and, and the impact that we had. And it was powerful, you know, these are just like moments, you know, where where it's like one night, you know, Fugazi coming to our reservation, but still has that legendary impact on me. You know, it just, it was powerful and resonates still, you know, as a musician. Fugazi came to to our home and 
they were so welcomed by by everyone and it was the night that they played was actually the most mixed audience like racially mixed audience that we'd ever had at one of um our our concerts that we promoted um on the reservation and that was really significant and i think it freaked everybody out too they're like whoa where did all of these people come from there was like it was incredible and that was you know that was also important you know that that the fact that um you know fugazi just brought all these different kinds of people together and they went on stage they sang their truth their art and we're so open about it. They're just real, real people making real art. And at some point on their tour, they managed to send us a postcard to say thank you. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I'm like, wow, you know, these folks are, are they're not, they don't just, um, they don't just talk about community on stage. Um, they don't just talk about that kind of, um, uh, you know, building relationships, but but they just sent us a postcard, and how cool is that? That to is say so thank cool. you. Yeah, I I was heartbroken to go on the Fugazi Live Series website and see that there's no recording available for um for the show they played at Gray Hills, um and and there's there's not even a set list written down. Um, I assume they they almost certainly would have played Smallpox Champion. Um, but I guess I guess we're not sure yet. But uh, yeah, if you do find a recording, definitely send that to Ian Mackay, and I'm sure he'll get a way to put that up online at some point. We're gonna continue to look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What you were saying about the yeah, the interesting qualities of Fugazi's writing, I like how it comes through in this song because I think Smallpox Champion is one of their more just hardcore songs. But even in that. Um, there, there's so many interesting parts. There's one of their trademark moves, which is this period of silence that happens after the first chorus, um, just to sort of like let the weight of what happened uh, sink in a little bit. Um, that happens on some of their songs, and it's always interesting when they play live to sort of hear what happens in those silent moments. There's that the intro, which is Ian playing this clean uh, part, but very wavering like wobbling the neck on his guitar back and forth and it, it's not just a throwaway intro it's it's like this important overture to what the song is um and then there are interesting little parts like on the first chorus Guy is playing these very dissonant high notes that don't seem to match the song and then on the second chorus he's like doing this up and down thing like a like an engine revving like uh, so they, I, th- I think the dissonance, the dissonance is crucial. Like that, the fact that this is not a beautiful part of American history, yeah, and that you know, in order to, you know, quite frankly, you, it's fucked up, and it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be clean. It's got to have that heavy distortion. It's got to, you know, have that emotion and dissonance because it is, it is fucked up, and <laughs> there's no beautiful or pretty way to to put it out there you know it's and then just that end part you know the champion part you know that's i think that's that's the part where you know feels like you know everybody can kind of come together on that you know it's like that's like the 
you know, the melody or something that, that everybody can kind of sing along with or chant with, you know, but the rest of it, it's, it's gotta be, you know, distorted and gritty and, ah, I know. had, um, <laughs> one of the listeners to the show, uh, wrote a pretty interesting comment on the alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page. Uh, Tony, Tony Ramos says, uh, this is a four minute song at about the three minute mark. It becomes an almost entirely different song major chords, anthemic feel, traditional composition, like the U.S. cavalry strutting triumphantly over the centuries-old land and people they just laid to waste. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting take that I hadn't uh, thought of. Janita and I were having this debate earlier. She's like, who is the champion? Is that like the cavalry? She actually thought that. <laughs> She's like, well, no, I, I didn't I didn't think that, but I was, I, was, um, I was trying to understand it. You know, who is the champion? Hmm. And, um, you know, yeah, is it? Is it the Calvary? Is it that they've championed um, and succeeded with, uh, with, with their, you know, with their dole, with their goals, their their annihilation? Is it the survivors, uh, the indigenous people, and our resilience, or is it the future? Is mm-hmm. it the listener who are the champions who get? who now have this information and what are they going to do with it? Well, your memory serves us to never let you wipe out. You know, that's, so is that saying that by talking about it, by memorializing it in this song, you know, to remember it, you know, that you have to be the champion and champion in these human rights and understand history. I must say, I like a lot of what you had said earlier and and the way that ties into um, Guy's idea about social progress through historical knowledge. I mean, it's and, and not only that, but the things that uh, the white settlers did coming back to sort of poison America in certain ways. Like, as you said, the distrust that Native Americans, that black people have for government initiatives. Like, I, I think it's it's not unearned, but like it's it's sort of something that hurts us t- today, and you know not only vaccine hesitancy, but just sort of the the way that we are not on the same page. The divisions that you were mentioning, I think what what are like the ancestors did the 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 white people in those days is like sort of coming back to bite America in the ass, and I I th- <laughs> like I have to imagine things would be better today if a more peaceful path had been chosen. Um, it sort of seems like that more and more every day as people wake up to the realities of, of our ugly history. Well, fortunately, we have our champions as indigenous people. We have awareness, you know, and people, you know, working towards land back. You know, there's, unfortunately, a lot of these movements are kind of like, hash. I don't want them to be hashtag movements where it's just like short, brief, social media blitzes where we have awareness about indigenous murdered and missing women, you know, mm-hmm. and then now people finally coming to the awareness of the children, you know, and there's, you know, for the murder and the missing indigenous women, you know, that's something that people um, associate with red. And now with the return of our children, you know, that's with orange, you know, there's all these different, campaigns, you know, the awareness, I think going back to Standing Rock, you know, of just how the, the fossil fuel industry, the, the black snake, tar sands, 
all of those things are still impacting indigenous communities, not just indigenous, you know, you think of Flint, you think of all these hot spots throughout America where people are being poisoned, you know, where our lives, you know, we want them to matter, you know, <laughs> you know, indigenous people that are being murdered and killed by police, black people, you know, black lives matter. Everything is, we're, seeing a wave of i don't want to say resistance it's awareness it's education it's people finally waking up to the fact that <laughs> these atrocities are continuing and we have to build a better world we have to work together we have to cross those lines and ensure that your children that my children are going to have a beautiful healthy future and that's part of that reason why like my sister and I you know, we formed Sihasen, our, our current formation of our, our band, because we were seeing packed suicides in our community, you know, kids at the age of nine killing themselves. And we're like, how and why, you know, this, on so many levels, this is systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And to get beyond those layers, get to the, the root cause, what, where does this all come from? And how are we going to transform this? And our, our gift, our ability is with music, you know, that that's the tools that, that we were handed, you know, and, and we're fortunate that, that we were able to to play on a stage with some of our heroes that, that also are champions of social justice, Fugazi, you know, to see how they they kind of <laughs> brought their energy and their, their style and technique into this modality, you know, that, that's a blessing, something that that, you know, I, I know on so many levels helped shape and form our way of perceiving this art form and, and giving direction. Um, I'd, I'd love to ask you more about that in a second. First, um, let me ask you uh, about something we do on every episode of this podcast called Ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Where we just say for every Fugazi song that we talk about, in the scope of all the Fugazi songs we know, do you think you'd be able to uh, like rate Smallpox Champion on a scale of one to five stars? Um, so, Clayson and Janita, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> right, I don't know. First and foremost, <laughs> well I, I, I have to respond to this because okay. this is not an indigenous way of thinking. When we think of <laughs> the concept of judgment exactly, and, and how to, <laughs> to put things on a scale, you know, like the... The value system for us as indigenous people, it's non, we're, we're trying to strip away and decolonize the whole capitalist mentality right here. Okay, so school's in, in session. So it's about supporting and working together in every element. So I, I, I could never judge something on, on a scale of that. Emotionally, what this does and how it speaks to me, that's far greater than, than any form of like this this is a, a 10 or a one or whatever you know this this is something that is important that everybody should listen to you know and try to understand you know i think it's it's more about a level of importance that yes this has meaning and is pertinent and it still is relevant today that's that's far greater than than judgment 
That's very well said. That's I totally exactly respect that. Answer. And uh, I, I always <laughs> ask my guests to comment on this, but I'm not going to make you rate. So uh, yeah, if, if you don't want to, that's... That's um, there's there's no competition. There's yeah. no stage. <laughs> We're all equals here. We're part of a circle, and as that circle, every voice matters. Every person that that is has some something to share or say. You know, it doesn't matter if this if it's a band that has just formed and just started out. You know, if you're a musician, and you're out there and you've written a song. You know, it's important, and I want to hear it. You know, I want to take the time to listen. That's. That's how I was raised. You know, I'm, I'm an individual that, you know, watches the credits at the end of a movie because mm-hmm. I know every single person put their time and energy into that. And I want to see, I want to listen to the music, the soundtrack. I want to take in the whole experience, the totality of it. So that's part of that indigenous circle competition that, that's introduced. You know, that's something that is used as a way to oppress. You know, there's that that's implying that, there isn't enough and that we need to compete. But there's the reality is that we have abundance. We have if I if I have too much, I can share. If I don't have enough, I can, you know, hopefully ask and you know, we can connect and network and find those resources and bring that balance. I have the idea that the band would probably agree with you on that. And uh they they're probably more on your page with that than on my sort of like music geek page about uh rating all these songs. Um so in, in respect of that, I will also refrain from giving this song a rating. I'll sit this one out with you. Um, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll just say that I love it. It's a great song, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity that it uh, gave me to talk to you and, and hear your ideas about these various things. Um, so the other thing we always do is uh, I'll ask you if you have any plugs. And, you know, where listeners can reach you online if you want to promote the sort of like any particular thing you've done as Sihasen or otherwise. And also, um, you know, for listeners who would like to learn more about the history and even like current issues around indigenous people, uh, like if you if you have any books or educational resources that you'd recommend, um, please feel free to let us know anything we should check out. Can I just say that, oh, my God. Gosh, this is this is exactly why I love Fugazi is because the music is intellectual. That that you know you open the door to an issue and the um, and you know the listener is invited to continue the journey and learn what they can and experience what they can. So <laughs> that's so cool. And that's something um, that we do with with Seahouse yeah, and Blackfire too. That was. Part of our motto is to to make it edutainment, to yeah, give to it open the a doors. whole experience. So if people are interested in hanging out with Clayson and I as Sihasen, um, you can find us on our social media um, sites, which is uh, Facebook, which is Sihasen. And we have S- a group as well. S-I-H-A-S-I-N, which we- of course means hope in our language. We also have um, links on our website, which is www.sihasen.com. And um, we, Clayson and I, you know, on our social media, we, we like to do a lot of different um, spotlights. Um, we just recently did a spotlight on the Code Talkers and the contribution of the Code Talkers. And, um, you know, 
We also talk about missing, murdered Indigenous women and children. Um, we talk about the importance of understanding one's culture and and appreciating culture and not appropriating other cultures as a means to appreciate your culture, uh, but rather to inspire. And so we have different platforms that are available. Um, and Clayson and I, and I, I'm putting you out there, Clayson, we love to continue the dialogue. Like we love the discussion. So we invite people to message us. And sometimes we're a little slow at it, but, but it's, but when we have a discussion, we're able to understand more. When we're able to understand more, then we break down the stereotypes and the prejudices that exist because there isn't any room in our imagination for that. So we'd love to continue the dialogue. Um, <clears throat> in terms of different... Um, there's, there's so much information. Goodness, you know... There's so much different information. I, what, I, what I ask is wherever you're listening, take an interest, do some research on where you're, uh, who, who are the people, who are the indigenous people of the land that you are privileged to live on? What are the cultures that, that existed and that still do exist? And how can we then... Uh, um, how and and find ways of of being an ally of uplifting and empowering those voices and so um that's that's my uh my hope is that yes there's great books to read great books um are everywhere <laughs> there's there's all kinds of things and you know i i have to say that this is for the first time since i can in, in my life, actually, for the first time in my life, like as an indigenous person, I can see indigenous people on TV, in movies, um, in magazines, hear music, hear our histories being spoken. And right now, in this, in this era, learning about issues that exist, um, on indigenous people's lands and that are affecting indigenous people are more accessible than ever. So I ask, you know, I, I, my hope is that you'll look into the issues that are in your community. It's been total honor to talk to you. I really loved uh, having this conversation. So once again, that's uh, Janita Benali and Clayson Benali of Seahasen, and I will uh, put all the links that I can to their stuff in the show notes, listeners. So go ahead and, and check those out, please. Thanks once again to you two and uh, to everybody listening out there. You can always reach me, as usual, at fugazi a to z at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, The Alphabetical Fugazi, and uh, let us know what you think about songs that are coming up. I, w I would have read some more of your comments today, guys, but I, I have to run soon and grab my daughter from daycare. But uh, I, I really appreciate everybody chiming in with their thoughts and uh, and the love that I felt for, for this song, Smallpox Champion, from you guys. And um, other than that, I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing song number one. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my last